What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's 2006, and the town of Ipswich is in the deep of winter and paralyzed with fear. The bodies of five sex workers have been found by police, sparking a massive manhunt in the east of England. He's targeting these women because they are vulnerable, because they are easy for him to access and easy for him to control. He had to be caught because he wouldn't stop until he was. The 10th was a, a huge day, really. I had literally driven out of Ipswich for about 10 miles when I got a phone call from the news desk. And the blood really felt like it drained from my face, from my body, because shivers down the spine, we were now into serial killer territory. As the horror began to unravel, it became a race against time to catch the killer. The police questioned over 2,000 motorists with no success. Steve Wright, through this whole period, was sitting at home watching this whole drama played out on 24-hour news channels, thinking to himself, I'm doing this. I'm controlling this. I'm going to try and get away with this. This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Steve Wright, the Suffolk Strangler. Steve Wright was born in Norfolk Village of Erpingham in 1958. He was one of four children and grew up in a military family, living on Royal Air Force bases around the world. His father, Conrad, was a retired corporal. He's a normal child. I mean, no aggression. He's a typical boy that just wanted to play. But family life was far from happy. Wright's mother left when he was just eight years old. Wright and his siblings stayed with their father, who went on to remarry. Whilst he was living with me, there was never a problem. Never, you know, he was happy. He had... Um, Little Barney's, I suppose, with uh, his stepmother at times when he weren't uh, a bit mischievous, if you like. But it was nothing that you would sort of think about an hour later. Wright left school at 16 and got a job working as a chef on ferries. By the early 1980s, Wright had become a steward on the cruise ship, the QE2. It was during this time he reportedly began to spend money on sex workers during trips to Thailand. Some experts, like criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley, believe this altered his perception towards women. I think he's got an expectation of women. Women are there to perform a service for him, to, to play a particular role. They serve a function for him. And that's something that we continually see throughout the rest of his life. He would often return home from his trips broke. Wright's father says he made an effort to visit him on the weekends to look after his dogs or share a few beers with his dad. Normal stuff. But when it came to his peers, he was a loner. 
So Steve Wright was a performer. He was performing a role as a guy who was interested in playing golf and going to the pub and, and going on holiday. He appeared to be somebody who was normal, somebody who fitted in, but behind that, there was something altogether different going on. Wright married twice, but both ended in divorce, with rumors of domestic violence. He also struggled to hold down a job and ran up large gambling debts. I knew he'd put money on horses. I used to take his wages off him, believe it or not, and I said, I'll give you enough to see you through the week because I wanted him to build up a kitty to sort himself out. But Wright continued to drive himself into the ground and gambled right into bankruptcy. At one point, he tried, unsuccessfully, to take his own life. For him to want to gas himself in the car, it must have been something that I were not aware of for him to get pushed to that limit. You know, whether he was trying to befriend young females, I think the girls that he, he was getting, they were younger than him, and whether they, in the end, they turned him down and he couldn't face it or something, and he felt rejected or whatever, I don't, I don't know. When he was here, there wasn't a problem. Where did he get then? Did he get so much into debt that it pressurised him so much that he just broke? I think for Steve Wright, if we look at some of his earlier experiences, this is somebody who came to crave control. He wasn't in control of his, his life as a child. The family was, were moving around, it was quite transient, it was quite chaotic. And as an adult, I think he felt an intense need to be in control. And that was what he was essentially doing here. He was internalising, so he was being violent towards himself. In 2002, while working as a bartender, 44-year-old Wright was arrested for stealing 80 pounds from the bar. This petty theft would later contribute to his downfall. His father had no idea that Wright was headed down an even darker, murderous path. He'd been to court because he'd taken money from the till. But he kept that from me anyway. So again, if he can keep one thing from you, can he keep others? By October 2006, 48-year-old Wright was living with a new girlfriend on London Road in the heart of Ipswich's red light district. In the same month, 19-year-old Tanya Nickel went missing from her home. Her father, Jim Duell, recalls. She came uh, round to mine about 8 o'clock at night. It was something like that. And she um, wanted a lift home, so I gave her a lift. I didn't want to tell her off about anything, you know, but we knew, as far as I was concerned, she was taking cannabis or whatever. And I didn't know that she was into drugs so heavily, you see. You don't know. We just talked like, like, like friends. When we got there, she just got out of the car. One of the things I noticed was she just walked straight into the house. Whereas, you know, you might turn around and give a little wave, but she just walked straight in. So I suppose that's sort of like um, this drug stuff, it, it, it dulls your senses to a lot of things. So it robs you of your, of your, of your life, really. And that was the last time I saw her. The family was unaware that Tanya was living a double life as a sex worker to fund her heroin addiction. Brian Tobin is the founder of the charity ICENI that specializes in supporting children and parents who have been affected by addiction and domestic abuse. 
Before 2006, Ipswich, like many market towns of this size in the UK, experienced problems with drugs. There was around, in 2000, summer of 2006, we'd done some research and identified around 70-odd women that were working on the streets of Ipswich. The main issue, obviously, why they're out on the streets in the first instance, all these women were out there to feed a drug habit. They were all class A addicts. Another young woman working on the streets of Ipswich in 2006 was Jade Reynolds. Um, every morning I wake up, you know, um, I have a heroin addiction to fund, you know, so unless you've probably saved money from working on the streets the night before, you've either got to lay there not very well for the morning and for the day. And then I'd get up at the night time, put on makeup and clothes and pretty much go and sell myself down on the street, you know. It was cold, dark, you know, very dangerous, but you don't think about the danger, you really just go out there and do what you've got to do, but it wasn't a good lifestyle, it wasn't an easy lifestyle. There is a lot of emotion that go with it and you either have to learn to switch off or let it overrun you, you know, and heroin is an easy way to switch off all your emotions. Meanwhile, Tanya Nichols' family hadn't heard from her for 48 hours. They reported her as missing. Police began to investigate her disappearance. We possibly thought she went with a load of people down to London somewhere and just stayed in a house or something like that. As time passed, Jim became increasingly concerned about his daughter. You're terribly, ter you're worried beyond, you just go out your head, you know, you've, you just, uh, you just, uh, you can't think straight, you know, you're so worried. And I think after about two or three weeks, it was sheer hell not, not knowing where she was. And, um, by then, you know that something, something's up. While Jim eagerly waited for any news about his daughter, just one month later, another young woman was reported missing, 25-year-old Gemma Adams. Jade, who knew Gemma, says this was unusual behavior. For Gemma to go missing, that's when you worry, because Gemma would never go missing. You know, she's not like that. You know, she's always certain time, certain place, this, that, that, you know. Yeah, so that was when Gemma went, that's when you knew something was wrong. The police stopped nearly 2,000 people and over 500 cars traveling through Ipswich's red light district to see if anyone recognized photos of Tanya and Gemma. But they had no luck. Sadly, this was not an unfamiliar story when dealing with local sex workers. You don't report every attack, but there's loads of times where we get people trying to steal our handbags or, like, trying to accost us, you know, because we're saying no to them, you know. You are worried and you are scared, thinking, hang on, Gemma's gone now. I didn't know Tanya, but she's gone. Where are they? And you think, yeah, it could be me, I could be next, but I've got to go and get my money for my drugs, you know, and you have to go out there. You have to learn to put emotions to the back of your mind while you're out on the street. I can then go home and be really scared, but if I was going to be scared that the girls are going missing, I'm not going to be able to earn the money for my drug addiction. Then on December 2nd, 2006, the police got the call that a body had been found in a brook on the outskirts of town. Tanya's father, Jim, feared the worst. By this time, I concluded that she'd gone. Honestly, I concluded that, that she was dead. Because by this time, she would have found her mother. Because she always phones her mother if she's going to be back late or anything. She was good at it. But it wasn't Tanya. 
police identified the body as Gemma Adams. There was no sign of a sexual assault, but her naked body had been dumped in flowing water, where most of any DNA evidence was washed away. The media was starting to take notice, including Paul Harrison of Sky News. My boss said to me that I should go to Ipswich uh, at the weekend. One body had been discovered. To him, something didn't seem quite right. He wanted me to get under the surface of what was happening in the red light district because we knew that two prostitutes uh, had gone missing. So what was this all about? Was this going to be something bigger? For a week, forensic teams scoured nearby woodlands for clues and divers explored the brook. Then, just when they were about to call off the search, divers found another body. This time, it was Tanya Nickel. Well, I think when I got the actual news, I, I can't remember my reaction, because it was something like, well, that's, you know, I don't, in me heart, I, don't, I knew already. Just like with Gemma Adams, there was no sign of sexual assault. The rushing water had stripped Tanya's body of any DNA evidence that might have existed. Suffolk police decided to call on homicide expert Commander David Johnston from Scotland Yard for help. I think they recognized the need to bring additional resources in to avoid that situation, and that's what they did. And Suffolk, I know, had probably 100 to 200 people initially engaged in this inquiry. But that number quickly grew, and Suffolk suddenly found themselves, of course, at the center of a huge uh, incident with significant media interest uh, globally. Meanwhile, Sky News began to do their own investigation over at the Red Light District. So by the time they discovered the body of Tanya Nickel, we had already begun to spend a bit of time in the Red Light District uh, late in the evening, early in the morning, just to see how prevalent prostitution was in Ipswich. And it wasn't difficult to find uh, uh, girls uh, on the streets very late at night. We spoke to a number of them. They were aware that uh, two girls had gone missing. We were almost delivering them the news that a second body had been found. We were almost telling many of these uh, girls for the very first time that the body of a, a second woman, uh, and almost certainly Tanya Nickel, um, had been discovered in Copdock. Their reaction, they weren't phased by it, it seemed. The women were unperturbed because this was, sadly, typical in the industry. Jade Reynolds speaks from personal experience. It's scary every night going out on the streets. It's scary every night. You could get attacked every night, you know? To be honest, doesn't matter how scary anything is, really. You've still got to go out there and do it. That tears at your heart and you think, oh, God, you know, what's happening? Who's next, you know? But even though you're discussing what if it could be me, you're still out there on the streets and you're still selling yourself because you still have a drug addiction to feed. Police were at a dead end. They had no clues and nothing to link the two murders. But after watching hours of CCTV footage from Ipswich's red light district, they finally found something of significance. On tape, Tanya was seen getting into a dark car on the night of her disappearance. Could the driver of the car be the killer? Hanford Road, Burlington Road, that was a place you would stand there, which went out at night on that corner. And they, they found uh, footage of a, just a brief 
apocalypse. The CCTV was captured outside of a supermarket on London Road, the same street where Steve Wright was living. Unfortunately, the footage wasn't clear enough to reveal a plate number or identify the driver. From my point of view, it's professionally very frustrating. Um, the whole emphasis of our role is to protect the public, and we take that very seriously. And so each day when we're carrying out the investigation um, and trying to identify this offender, it's very concerning to us uh, when we still don't have an identification made. It had been eight days since Gemma Adams had been found murdered. As the police continued with their investigation, they received some more shocking news. On December 10th, just two days after the discovery of Tanya Nichol, the body of a third woman was found in a woodland in the nearby village of Nacton. The 10th was a, a huge day, really. I had literally driven out of Ipswich for about 10 miles when I got a phone call from the news desk. And the blood really felt like it drained from my face, from my body, because shivers down the spine, we were now into serial killer territory. I think it would be fair to say, yes, there was extreme concern uh, being expressed in Ipswich, not just amongst um, sex workers or um, the women involved in that line of work, but across the whole of the community. Um, this was uh, a significant event, completely unparalleled, uh, as far as I know, in the history of Ipswich in that area, which is normally a very quiet rural town. We were now dealing with a serial killer, almost certainly, and also, whilst the national media, the UK media, were all over it by now, this is when you began to see the beginnings of the international interest in it as well. Distinctive tattoos on the third body led the police to identify her as Anna Lee Alderton, who had not been reported missing. She had also been making money as a sex worker in Ipswich. She was 24 years old and a mother of one. She was a uh, mad, kind of happy-go-lucky, crazy chick. You know, I lived in my first squat with Anna Lee. Really nice girl. I would say she's like a free spirit, you know, she's like, mm, you know, great, like, I'm Annie, you know, this is me, you know, so she's kind of cool, like, to hang around with, you know. The media's focus on Ipswich intensified. I'd raced back to the scene in Nacton where the body of Anna Lee Alderton was discovered. We knew very little at that stage about in what position it lay, but what we did know was that it was on dry land. And this was a twist in the story because the two previous victims had been deposited in water. So the police, for them, it was very exciting that in terms of DNA, this could be something that they could work with. The autopsy showed that Annalie had been strangled and tragically revealed that she had also been three months pregnant. She had been left in the crucifix position with her arms outstretched. There is a tendency to want to attach a lot of meaning to that. Many people were, were looking at this as it unfolded, saying, well, there's, there's some religious motivation here. But I don't think it was about that at all. It was about essentially getting attention. Even serial killers get bored. They want to mix things up a bit. They want to try something new. Despite their hopes, the police still had no clues and no leads. The pressure to catch the killer was building.
There's always pressure because you have the media uh, who are consistently um, requiring information because there's 24-hour media and they want to know what's happening. There's anxiety being expressed in the community and, of course, the police themselves want to catch this man as quickly as possible. I'm losing my friends. Well, I don't want to keep losing my friends. I don't want to lose my own life. You do think about stuff like that. It's not something that you don't think about. International media began to turn their attention to the Ipswich police. This was the era of reality television when, when that started to become very popular. We were seeing it as it unfolded on 24-hour rolling news, and you never knew what was going to happen from one day to the next. Detectives urged sex workers to stay off the streets for their own safety, but their warnings were largely ignored. A local news crew interviewed one of the women, asking her why she would risk meeting the same gruesome fate. She said that despite knowing the dangers, she needed the money. She did note, however, that she was feeling nervous about getting into cars. But to her, the risk was worth it for a night's pay. The woman interviewed was 24-year-old Paula Clinnell. Paula Clinnell. She had children, and um, she was always trying quite hard to change her life. You know, she was happy when saw her. You know, a nice girl, but yeah, she, she tried quite hard, you know, to get out of it, you know, because it's a very hard thing to get out of the addiction if you still live generally in the same town. But yeah, she was trying, you know, to get away from it and change her life, bless her. A few days later, both Paula and 29-year-old Annette Nichols, the best friend of Jade Reynolds, went missing. Annette was a girl, for me, that oh, I was so humbled to know. You know, she always took time for me. She'd want to know if I was all right, if there's anything she could do. She'd do anything for anybody else. She was always well-kept. She'd greet you with a smile and a happiness. You know, you felt all right when you was with Annette. I did. I could think, oh, yeah, wicked. There she is, you know. I kind of... It was a relief, because I know that I could talk to her. She'd understand my problems. So when she went missing, that's kind of like tearing out a piece of my heart. As police searched for Paula and Annette, a grim inevitability took hold of the public. There was almost certainly going to be another discovery. Where was it going to be? Who was it going to be? It was nail-biting. And whilst it wasn't, it can't be described as fear, it was really palpable. You, you, you sensed that from the people in the town. You sensed it from your colleagues. Uh, but also from other colleagues from other media organizations and the police as well. On December 12th, another body was found in Levington, just a mile away from Nacton, in the same woods where Annalee Alderton had been discovered just days before. While somebody was out walking their dog, they stumbled upon the body of a fourth victim, just a few meters away from the main road in Levington in the undergrowth, also this time not in water. Again, the DNA was important in, you know, in this case. Um, but what seemed quite strange about this one is that it almost had an appearance of a rushed approach, that uh, this body was deposited by the side of the road, albeit a few meters uh, off the main road. It, it had the appearance, or it seemed as if it was, had been done quickly. The police sent a helicopter up to survey the woodland for evidence. As it circled the area, they made another shocking discovery. Yet another body was lying in the woods only 100 yards away. 
The two naked bodies were those of the missing women, Paula Clennell and Annette Nichols. Both had bruises around their necks, indication that they'd been strangled. I don't think I'll ever get back what I had with Annette, with another girl. You know, this is the most beautiful woman that I'd ever known that had become quite important to me that I could trust. You know, and now it's not there. I didn't go out after that. I was quite sensible, because, like, I couldn't, I emotionally couldn't go out and work on the streets after Annette was found. In just six weeks, five women had been murdered, all by asphyxiation. Because of this similarity, the press had begun to refer to the killer as the Suffolk Strangler. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansell notes, Interestingly, none of the five victims showed any sign of sexual assault. So it isn't a rape murder. It is a targeted murder without a sexual element. He is very much feeding off the media frenzy that, that's being created around his crimes. And he's increasingly feeling even more in control of, of what's going on. And he's absolutely loving it. He believes he's fulfilling something. They're all dumped very, really quite close to each other. Demonstrates that he thinks he's doing something in his own fantasy world that is cleansing the world of evil or cleansing the world of dirt or cleansing the world of inappropriate sexual appetite, we'll never know. I don't think Wright probably knows now. All I do know is that he had to be caught because he wouldn't stop until he was. On December 15th, Tanya Nichols' father, Jim, made an emotional plea to find the killer. With increasing pressure to make an arrest, police decided to question a local 37-year-old man. He was identified because he had spent considerable time in a radio car talking to a radio journalist and other um, TV journalists. I spent a bit of time with him uh, to try and get to know his relationship with the girls. There was uh, a kind of a, an understanding between them that you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. He was uh, loosely associated as a friend of one or more of the girls who were murdered. And at that stage, he became of significant interest to the inquiry. There was a very strong feeling from some of the media people present that this man was the right man and should be looked at more seriously. With a suspect in custody, detectives received a lead from the forensics lab. The three bodies that were found on dry land did have DNA evidence on them. The DNA found on all three women was the same. It was run through the national database and police got a match, but it wasn't the man they had in custody. At that time, and as it still stands today, if a person is arrested or convicted of an indictable offense or a serious offense, uh, they can have their DNA taken and held on the database. The DNA matched that of a local man who had been convicted of stealing 80 pounds from a bar cash register back in 2002. 48-year-old Steve Wright. And it was that match which led to significant additional work, including then the CCTV evidence, which showed a vehicle being used by Wright moving between some of the locations around the relevant times. So he became a major suspect in the inquiry. While the media was focusing on the man in police custody, Wright was put under surveillance. Once the police had discovered the DNA, it matched Steve Wright immediately, although from a distance, 
making quite a brave move, actually, not by arresting him straight away, but watching him, seeing his movements. What was he doing? Where was he going? Just for a 24-hour period. And ultimately, as we were all elsewhere looking at somebody else, another suspect, bang, they had made an arrest. They'd arrested Steve Wright. Soon, the news reached Wright's father, Conrad. I didn't believe it, as simple as that. Two people come to my door uh, to say your son has been arrested, and I didn't believe it. Jade was also stunned. She had unknowingly met with the killer. At the time, I split up with my partner, moved into my mum's house, and I woke up one morning with uh, the world media on my doorstep, to put it bluntly. And they said, did you know Steve Wright was, like, a client to your daughter, blah, 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 blah. And I didn't even know. My mum didn't even know, you know. But then it all came out, you know, that it turned out he's actually my first punter, which was shocking, you know. And, and I thought, oh, my God, I was right with him right there, right then, you know. And, uh, yeah, I was kind of shocked, really, really shocked, to be honest, thinking that I was that close to him. Made me feel sick. During eight hours of interrogation, all Wright muttered was no comment. The no comment at, at police interviews is indicative of, of that power and that control. So I have all of this knowledge and all of this information. I know everything about these crimes, and you want that knowledge. So I'm going to use this to my advantage. He knows everything that the police want to know. And is he going to tell them? Is he not going to tell them? That gives him a massive sense of control. Although Wright didn't confess to the killings, on December 21st, 2006, police charged him with all five murders based on the forensic evidence they had so far found. The other suspect was released from custody without charge. Prosecutors now began the arduous task of building a solid case against Wright for the upcoming trial. Michael Crimp was part of the legal team. Of the five bodies that were recovered, Two of them had been immersed for some time in water, and if there had been any DNA on their bodies, it had long since gone. And so in terms of DNA evidence, there was nothing to link Steve Wright with them. Detectives impounded Wright's car, and in it they found fibers from a fake fur jacket owned by Annette Nichols. They also found traces of Paula Clonell's blood. Wright really didn't do very much to conceal his movements. He drove his own car. He dumped the bodies from his own car. He wasn't very forensically aware, as so many determined killers are these days. He didn't know about DNA and fibre analysis and trace and all the other things that we've all become so familiar with as a result of television series and the rest. Wright pretty much did as he pleased and thought he could get away with it. Forensic experts also examined Wright's home. Inside, they found the blood of Paula Clonell and Annette Nichols on a jacket. But there was no link between Wright and the deaths of Tanya Nichol and Gemma Adams, the two women whose bodies had been found in the water. Investigators re-watched the CCTV from the night Tanya Nichol went missing, and they were now certain the car that she got into was Wright's blue Ford Mondeo. Both fibers in their hair and fibers in on gloves and other items that belonged to Steve Wright clearly linked him to those two as well. It was over for Steve Wright. He was now linked to all five women.
His trial began at Ipswich Crown Court on January 16, 2008. Wright pleaded not guilty. To me, he looked pretty cool uh, about it all. He didn't seem particularly emotive about the evidence as it was being put to him. Well, he had to explain the scientific evidence in this case, which linked him very closely with all five of the victims. And so his explanation was that he'd been in close association with all five of them, and obviously not long before they disappeared off the street. Wright argued that he had picked up the women for sex, and that was why there was evidence of them in his car. The defense were arguing that it might have been a coincidence, but no more. But his case began to fall apart under intense questioning. It was an odd picture that he portrayed because there was just too much coincidence in this case, that the evidence provided more than just coincidences, that, that it provided the evidence that, that damned him. We put to him uh, various bits of evidence and said, well, was that just a coincidence? And to each, each question like that, all that Steve Wright said was something like, well, so it would seem or it appears so. And he just couldn't deal with the questions that he was being asked about how all these apparent coincidences existed. On February 21st, 2008, after only six hours of deliberation, the jury found Wright guilty of all five murders. He was given a life sentence and was immediately sent to Belmarsh Prison never to be released. I think the thing that's striking about this case is the speed with which Wright moved from being a relatively unknown minor offender involved in a minor theft to killing five women in a very short period of time. Uh, and I am strongly of the belief that had he not been arrested, he would have continued to kill. This was a man who was desperate to be known, desperate to be someone. And by killing those five women, the notoriety that he achieved effectively made him into someone. We talked about the Suffolk Strangler, this man who nobody really knew. Suddenly, everyone knew him. He was world famous for being the Suffolk Strangler. We may never know why Wright carried out these frenzied attacks, or if there are other victims that have perished at his hands. Wright himself still denies the murders. To this day, he has maintained his innocence. He says he did not kill those five women. He goes even further to write to his father, who in his father's eyes, he did what he did. And it hurts Steve Wright, actually, that his father doesn't believe him when Steve Wright says, I didn't do it. His father looked in his eyes, turned and walked out of prison when he said, look into my eyes, do you think I did it? As for his father... Well, it wouldn't make me feel any different whether I forgive him or not. I mean, the deed is done. And uh, I'm, in a way, responsible for him being out there. You know, I brought him into the world. And for those who lost their friends and their family, life will never be the same. You know, I got to a, to a resting place and uh, sand and have a little conversation like you would you know, and say, I've come up to see you, dear, you know, and uh, and have a little bit of emotion going there, you know. But there you are, it's love, isn't it? It's always in our memory, of course she is. Even now, 10 years later, I can still, I'm sitting here and I'm trying to be clean and I'm trying not to let my emotions get the better of me, but there's so many things that I see and I think, oh yeah, Annette would love that. 
I still, I'll find it hard now, and I'll find it hard like 20 years time, you know, that she's not here anymore. It tore a piece of me out that I won't get back. I think Ipswich will never forget those terrible times, those few weeks in December 2006, where the world's eyes were on them for all the wrong reasons. And they will take the vital lessons learned during that period forward. They won't forget the women, they won't forget the girls who were killed, but they will move forward uh, and try to not allow that period to uh, effectively dictate their future. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Karen Bevan, Casey Georgie, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Pam Burroughs, Lauren Vogel, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel. And for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to those involved with the case and families of the victims willing to share their stories. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please reach out for help. You can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. You can also visit their website at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify. Or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. on next week's episode of What Makes a Killer. In June 1985, a string of mysterious missing persons cases captivated the San Francisco area. Entire families had seemingly vanished without a trace. But when police respond to a shoplifting incident, they begin to unravel the dark and deadly secrets of the two men involved. Lake and Ng are a dominant and subservient pair of lust killers. One having the lust fantasy, the other going along with the lust fantasy. These two were incredibly cold. They really didn't care. And, and the way that they treated their victims, they humiliated them, they tortured them. This was what they thought was fun. 